morning, we are going to wrap up our, our series uh, that we're in on parables. And as Tabitha said, next week we start uh, Surface Tension. I'm super excited uh, about that series, what God's going to do uh, in, in our lives and uh, the people that, that you invite to come. I saw this quote the other day. It said, it's not the water all around a boat that causes it to sink. It's the water that gets in a boat that causes it to sink. And I think throughout life, uh, we get a lot of water on the inside of us and our lives, and it causes us to sink and not really live victorious. And uh, a lot of that is related to our emotions. Uh, Unfortunately, I think in church a lot, we've not been taught to uh, see our emotions as good. We've been taught to see them as bad. And uh, I just want us to understand that all emotions are from God. Right? God created emotions. We see throughout the scriptures, uh, people dealing with their emotions. We see Jesus exhibiting a wide range of emotions. And so as we go through this series over eight weeks, we're going to take a look at different individuals throughout scripture and uh, the emotions they expressed, what they dealt with, and put some tools uh, in, our, in our lives of how we can really be successful and how we can, we can grow, how we can move from where we're at ultimately to where God wants us to be. So again, it starts next week. And then in the fall, we're going to launch some small groups on the basis of this to talk about it in more detail and uh, to really grow. And uh, again, just be who God has created us to be. This morning, uh, we're going to conclude with the story of the prodigal son. Interestingly enough, uh, this is the first sermon that I ever preached. I was about 17 years old, and I still have the CD of that first sermon. It was on a Sunday night, and, uh, it, and I have my notes, too. I don't know why I kept them. I thought maybe I'd preach it again. Uh, but I looked at my notes, and they're, they're not very good. And uh, I listened to the CD, and I don't think it was very good either. And some of you told me I did a good job because you were there, and thank you for lying to me and making me feel better. Uh, it encouraged me to this day. But uh, this, this story uh, really holds a special place in my heart. And uh, it's getting Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. We'll read it. But uh, Jesus tells this story in a series. It's really a, a kind of a trilogy, uh, so to speak. And he tells it to a particular audience. The audience that Jesus is talking to, and we know this because it tells us, is uh, two groups. It's tax collectors and notorious sinners and Pharisees. Now, those are not my words. Those are the words straight from the text. And the tax collectors and notorious sinners, they were individuals who obviously weren't following after God. Uh, Tax collectors were kind of the bane of the society's existence. People hated them. They made their money by dishonest means. They just squeezed people of all their money. People hated them. Notorious sinners, they were just people who lived their lives out in the open and were doing things that were obviously wrong. But the interesting thing about this group of people is they knew it. They knew their failures, they knew their sin, but yet they were so eager to listen to Jesus. They followed him, they listened to him, they responded to his teaching, even when it was difficult, even when he didn't paint uh, what they were doing in a good light, and that if they continued in this, it would not end up well for them. They were hungry to listen to Jesus. This other group were the Pharisees. These people, they were marked by duty and performance, and by all outward appearances, their lives were upright and moral, but really, they had no understanding of the Father's heart. They really had no fellowship with him. Both groups of people did not have fellowship with the Father because of different reasons. The first group, just all-out rebellion and pride, didn't want to follow God, thought their way was better. The second group thought they were, but was predicated on duty and performance and lives marked by comparison. And so he tells this story in response to the biggest criticism and complaint against Jesus' ministry. Jesus had detractors, and many of them. 
He had a teaching ministry. He traveled. And the biggest complaint levied against him from people who were more religious and kind of the establishment was that he spent too much time with and associated with sinners, with people who didn't know him, people who didn't live, weren't living their lives in according to how he wanted them to live. They, they said, you spend way too much time with them. Why would you associate yourself with them? Read throughout the Gospels. That's the biggest complaint of Jesus's ministry. So he tells the following three stories, and we're going to focus on the last and perhaps the most popular. Go with me to Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. It says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate before you die. Now his father agreed to give him a divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved to a distant, distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And he said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found, so the party began. But meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and the dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? And they said, well, your brother is back, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. But the older brother was angry and would not go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, doesn't even refer to him as his brother, son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And his father said to him, Look, dear son, You've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now is found. Popular story, one of my most favorite stories in all the scripture. And what's interesting is, is that I want us to see this story not through the eyes of the son. I think that we have mislabeled this story, the prodigal son. Because the emphasis in this story is not on the son or the, the first or the second son. It's really on the father. The emphasis in this story is on the father. But, but when we label it the prodigal son, we only focus on the one son. And we can miss the richness of, of the heart of God in this story. I told you this is a trilogy of stories. Uh, stories about, about things that are lost. 
And in each story that Jesus tells, he's revealing the heart of the father. So when we look at this story, it's about a father and two sons. We say, who's the father in the story? It says a certain man. A certain man in this story is God. And God is primarily revealed in the New Testament as father. Jesus refers to God exclusively as father, except one time on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul writes and says, Abba, father. Abba literally means daddy. It's what your young children would call you. It's this term of endearment. There is intimacy. There is relationship. God is revealed as father in the New Testament. Now he has two sons. And in this story, the sons also represent something. So there's two groups of an audience, right? Notorious sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees. And the sons are also representative of those same groups. The first son, who is a younger son, comes to his father and says, every part of my inheritance I want. I want it. I want to take it and I want to leave. And that culture and that time to do that to your father, and even a little bit in ours, is to say, I'm effectively done with you. I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. I'm out of here. I no longer have any need for you. I want to live life on my own terms. I want to experience it. I want to do what I think is best. He is representative of that first group that out of pride, arrogance, and rebellion rejects the father. The second son is a son who is moral. He's loyal. He's upright. He doesn't leave the father. He stays with the father. But yet, as we read later on, we really recognize that he too doesn't have relationship with the father. He doesn't understand the father's heart. His life is marked by duty and performance and comparison. But neither son, neither group really has fellowship with the father. And these two sons and the way that they live their lives, it illustrates that for us. And so as we, as we look at the story and we see this son leaving his father who says, I, I want everything that you have for me. I want it now. And the father relents and he gives it to him. This all-out rejection of the father. And he goes, and the Bible says he spends his money on wild living. That's just a nice way to say that he experienced some debauchery. His brother points out for us, he's spending all of his money on prostitutes. So he didn't go out and do a lot of good stuff with his money. He does that, and he spends everything that he has, and he finds himself in a horrible situation. Which is interesting. He thought rejecting his father and experiencing ultimate freedom would be the best, but he found with ultimate freedom came ultimate poverty. Came ultimate depravity. He couldn't handle it. There is really no freedom outside of what God has set in place. And he finds himself working for a pig farmer. Now, this story is told from a Jewish perspective to Jewish people. And for a Jewish person to find themselves working with pigs is, is the lowest of low. They don't eat pork. They don't, the pigs are unclean. And here he is touching, and they couldn't touch an unclean animal because it made them religiously unclean. And he's considering eating the food that the pigs eat. Horrible. Everybody in the audience would have been fully aware of the depravity of the situation for this young man. And he makes a decision in the midst of this horrible situation. He decides to go back home, but not as a son, as a servant. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be my father's son. And I will tell him 
That, hey, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, and please, just take me back as a servant. That's his, his position here. That's what he, he wants to do. And so if you can imagine him getting his speech together and preparing to leave and go back home, head held, held low, realizing everything that he's done, fully prepared to be a servant in the house of his father and not a son, and he, he returns, makes the journey home, and when the story begins to turn and really, really, really speak to people is this image of the father. Because as the son is making his way home, it says that when the father saw him from a long way off, and to see something or someone from a long way off means that you'd have to be looking for it, right? You'd have to be watching and waiting for it. So we have this understanding this father has been daily standing and waiting for his son to come home, keeping his eyes out, scanning the horizon. And the moment he saw his son recognize him from a far way off, he ran. Now, that's very, very important to understand because he too, again, he's Jewish. He's a wealthy Jewish man. He's a landowner. They were very dignified. They didn't run. They did not put themselves on a lower level. They were dignified at all times. They never broke character. They never broke what the proper decorum of the day was. And they wore these robes. They didn't wear pants. He had sandals on. So imagine this dude hiking up his robe and running, running, running past his neighbors, running through the city streets, making a fool of himself to embrace the son who rejected him out of pride and rebellion and who effectively said, you are dead to me. This father runs. And it says that the father was moved with compassion towards his son. Moved. Literally meaning that he was moved as so deep as into his bowels. It's the same phrase used when Jesus looked over the crowds of people and was moved with compassion. That same guttural, deep, seated love that God has for people. And he ran to his son. And here's what's amazing to me because the son has a speech prepared, right? He's got a speech. He wasn't prepared for his father to run to him. He wasn't prepared for his father to do anything like he did. And he's like, dad, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And I just want to be your servant. And if you'll notice in the text, the father says quick to the servants. One translation says, but the father wasn't listening. The father wasn't interested in the speech the son had. The father was interested in one thing, and that was embracing and saving and welcoming his son back into the family. And he says, get a robe, put it on him. Get a ring and put it on his finger. In those days, they had a family crest. That just by the ring, it signified that you were a member of this family. Think about when they would put wax on an envelope and they would stamp it with the signet ring and it would tell you where it came from. The father says, put this ring on his finger. That was saying, hey, he is my son. But the son said he wasn't worthy. The son just wanted to be a servant. And he says, put sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. We are throwing a party for this young man. I think it's at this point myself and maybe everyone else listening to that story would say, he doesn't deserve it. Why would the father rejoice over a son who rejected him, who squandered everything that he gave him? Why would he welcome him back in the family? Why wouldn't he make him pay for it? Why wouldn't he make him earn it? Why does he get the special treatment? This heart of the father rejoices over what was lost but now is found. Incredible. Throwing a party, having a good time. But then the story shifts to the other son. The other son's been working in the field. 
He's been by his father. He, he, he says to the servants, what is going on? And they tell, oh, they're so excited. Hey, your brother has come back. We're having a party. We're having fun. We're eating good. Your father is so happy. And the son was angry and he couldn't even go out and celebrate with his father. So much so that the father came and asked him, Bible says, begged him to come be a part of it. And the son says this to his father. He's angry. I've been with you this whole time. I've never left you. I've never refused to do anything that you've said. And I've done, I've done everything. And never once have you ever given me anything. Never once. And this son of yours, Kenny, he's not even his brother anymore. This son of yours wasted everything that you gave him on prostitutes. And you never gave me anything. And the father looks at his son and he says, you've been with me this whole time. Everything that I have is yours. You want, a, you want a calf? You want a goat? Go get it. You want robes? We got them. You want ring? Put on your feet. You want sandal? It's yours. I have an unlimited supply. He said we had to celebrate. Listen to that. We had to. It was a must. Because he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And that's how he ends the story. And just like Jesus does, he leaves in it in tension. By telling the story of the sons, he's talking at the same time to both groups. And both groups perceive the story in different ways. Because he, he, he comes right to the, to the meat of the issue for each of them. And it has to do with how they view God and, and what their relationship with him towards him will be. And as we, we look at this story, this incredible story about the heart of the father, there's just some things that we learn. And I just want to share just three things that we learn. The first thing that we learn when we look at this is that we're all lost. God fundamentally sees humanity as lost. Now, that may not really encourage you right now. You may be thinking, well, well God has a low view of humanity, but really he doesn't. Because God views us as lost and in need of saving and in need of finding. And when I think of this, when God sees me as lost and in need of finding, what that indicates is value and worth. Because when you lose something, the moment you lose it, you are fully aware of the value and the worth that it holds in your life because you choose to look for it or not, right? If you got kids and they lose a Lego, you got 7,000 more in there on the floor. Go pick one up, right? If you lose a penny... Yeah. You lose a $10 bill, I'm looking for it. You lose your wallet, everything's stopping to find it. You lose your phone, you better believe. You can be late for work for that. When you lose something, the value and the worth become so incredibly important to you. But the thing about value and worth is it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? What's valuable to you may not be valuable to me. What you have placed worth on, I may not place any worth on. 
And in a culture and in a society and a philosophy that effectively says that human life is not valuable, there is no intelligence behind it, there is no worth behind it, we're just a product of time plus chance plus matter, and it's just random, and you, you're born and you die, and who cares? That is, that is really stripping away value and worth. But what we're saying, what we believe, is there's a, there's a heavenly father, a creator, a designer who created you and has said you have value and worth intrinsically and that value and that worth is 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 there even before one breath is taken on this earth you're not valuable because of what you do or what you don't do your worth is not determined on this earth because of anything that you could have done should have done would have done did do or 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 didn't do it is simply because god in heaven created you and said you are valuable you have worth. And, and whatever anyone has told you, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, teachers, friends, people, society, they've worked to strip away that value, strip away that worth. I just want you to know this morning, whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, you have worth. You matter. What you do is an outflow of the worth and the value that you perceive in yourself. If you don't think you have worth and value, you will subject yourself to things that destroy you. If you believe you have worth and value, you will do your best to live in a way that speaks to that value. So many times we are guilty of pointing fingers at people because of the choices they're making and we want to shame them or guilt them into doing the right thing. But what we don't realize is they have no value. When they look in the mirror, they don't see someone who matters, someone who, who's important, someone who means something to somebody. That's why they do the things they do to destroy themselves because they are living up to their perceived value. And God says, I see all humanity is lost because of sin, but I value them so much so much that I want to find them. That's why the story is the lost shepherd, the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves 99 to get one. He still had 99. The woman has 10 coins and she loses one and they're not worth anything, but she turns her house upside down to get the one coin. And the father, he has two sons. One rejected him completely, wanted nothing to do with him, yet he finds himself waiting and watching for the son because of value and worth. See, to the tax collectors and notorious sinners, this is making a lot of sense. They're listening. They're eager. They're identifying with that first son. They're saying, wow, this, this Jesus guy, he, he, he's speaking differently than, than, than the Pharisees over here who, who've compared our, themselves with us and told us that we don't have value and worth. And the Pharisees, you see, they're, they're over there sitting and they're, they're probably really not liking what Jesus is saying about this because they understand where he's going. And then when he delivers the message about the second son, then they really get the picture. Jesus is telling them, you're no different. You don't have fellowship with me either. See, the Pharisees, their problem was this. They had proximity and performance, but no fellowship. What do you mean by proximity? Oh, they were... They were their perception was they were close to God because of what they did. Because they read the law, they knew the law, they lived the law. They were blameless before God. They, they had proximity. We, we think that we can have proximity because we come to church events. We, we, we do Christian things. That would be proximity. But what God is saying is, is, no, no, no. This is not a thing about worth, right? You're not earning this. I, you are sons and daughters by birth, not by worth. 
right? You are, I love you because I created you. I want a relationship because I'm your father. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough. When you do good things, I don't love you more. I love you fundamentally for who you are. Proximity and performance never equal fellowship, ever. You can't perform your way into a relationship with God. And, and on the basis of this story, if anybody's got an argument for proximity, it's the father. The father made himself close to the son. I know the son chose to came back, come back. The father could have stood there like this and watched him walk and stared him down. Couldn't he? Shamed him, guilted him. But the father didn't do that. He becomes undignified. His love becomes reckless. And he runs to the son. We're lost. But God, but God sees us in need of being saved and found. And he runs to us. And the second thing that we learn here is that comparison is deadly. It's deadly. Let me read to you. Verses 28 through 30. Here, I want you to hear the son. The older brother, the, the second brother. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. All these years I've slaved for you and never, you never once and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. What's he doing? He's comparing himself with his brother. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm better than him. I deserve to be your son. He doesn't deserve to be your son. Look, dad, everything that I've done, I've proven to you that I'm your son. I want you to think about this. You come down for breakfast one morning. You've made, you're making breakfast. Your kids come down. Imagine when they were younger, if they're not young. Imagine if you're not a parent, if you would be. And your child comes down and, you're, and, and they start to say, well, you know, mom or dad, I, I've been doing good at school. I've been doing my chores. I've, I've, I've not been getting in trouble. And I just want you to know that I am worthy to be your child. What would you tell your child? I would say, shut up. (laughs) You were my child from the moment I found out that your mother was pregnant with you. And I loved you in that moment. And every day since, my love grows for you, and I don't even know why. When you're all kinds of crazy up in here and driving me nuts, I'm loving you. When you blow it, I love you. When you do good, I'm proud of you. But my love for you is not predicated upon what you do for me. Because you are my son or my daughter by birth, not by worth. And the same goes for us. We are sons and daughters of God by birth, not by worth. That's why we find in the scriptures, you must, you must be born again. Not you must do ABC and then you can earn it. No, no, you must be born again. But when you live a life of comparison, when you live in a world of comparison, you cannot receive grace. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. And here's why. Because grace does three things. Excuse me. Comparison does three things. It leads to contempt. It leads to pride. And it's incapable of celebration. It leads to contempt. It leads to pride and is incapable of celebration. What do you mean by contempt? Here's what I mean. When people around you get stuff that you want and you've been praying for, 
you hold those people in contempt and you can't celebrate with them. Why? Because they got what you want. And you're better than them. That's where pride comes in. Hey, I know them, God. And I think they're just ridiculous. I've seen them goofing off and not doing what I'm doing. And I don't think they've been praying as much. And they've not, I've been seeing what shows they watch. And they've been doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I've seen their kids acting a fool out in the hallway. And they, they all, all kinds of stuff. God, they, they don't deserve it. Where's mine at? Why haven't you done that for me? See, when you, when you live in comparison, you have a poverty mentality. You, have, you view God through the lens of scarcity as if he's limited and what he did for Bob, he can't do for you. And you think that because he blessed this person over here, he's not going to be able to bless you because he gave it all to them and you don't realize he's, he's got a cow on a thousand hill, right? He's got unlimited resources and maybe just maybe he wants to do for you what he did for them, but you're living your life stuck in comparison, so worried what other people are doing, what they're getting, you can't see what God's doing for you. And let's bring it down to a practical level with comparison. I just want to encourage you today, stop comparing your lives with other people. Stop comparing your kids to someone else's kids. Stop comparing your, your uh, stuff with someone else's stuff, like their car, their vacations, their clothes, their house. Stop, because they may be putting all that on a credit card. You don't know. Stop comparing it. Stop comparing your talents and abilities with someone else's or your perceived lack thereof. Stop comparing your social media profile with someone else's. Honestly, if you're in here today and you're looking at other people's like Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of gram stuff, and you are walk away depressed, I'm telling you, you're not even looking at reality. They filtered it. They, they did something to make it look better than it really is. It's a farce. Stop comparing because you're missing out on what God wants to do in your life. You're missing out on what God wants to teach you and what he wants to show you and how he wants to help you in this moment and that he wants you to grow and he wants you to, to move forward, but you can't do that when you're so focused on the person to your left and to your right and now you're holding them in contempt and when your friend came to you and they told you what God did for, for, uh, for them, you couldn't even celebrate with them because you became jealous and you became prideful. Man, can you imagine what life would be like if someone else is prospering and we can celebrate with them? That's not easy, but I think that's part of what it means to be a Christ follower. God set you free. God paid that bill for you. Hallelujah. I remember when I was trying to pay off my student loans, I prayed multiple times that just like thousands of dollars would show up in my, my, uh, my mailbox. I had friends paying their loans off around me, God blessing them financially, and I'm like, God, what's going on here? I know, I know, I know them. Don't you see what I'm doing here? What I didn't realize is God just had a different plan for me. God, what I didn't realize is that it would take me 10 years to pay my loans off, but I was on a 25-year repayment plan. So God blessed me by being able to pay 15 years early. What I didn't realize is the little steps. He was blessing me by giving me more money at a job. And he's like, hey, don't spend it on stupid stuff. Why don't you pay off your loans? Well, God, I thought you could let it drop in my mailbox and I could just, in one whack, pay it off lump sum. Thank you. <laughs> There's a process that God takes each and every one of us through. Comparison is deadly. Stop living in comparison right now. Just make the decision to stop. Because the third thing that we learn is this, is just God loves lost things. He loves lost things. He pursues lost things. 
He's on the hunt for lost things. His eyes search to and fro, right? Scouring the earth for lost things. The emphasis in this story is not on the condition of the things that are lost, but the emphasis is on the agony upon the heart of the one who has lost something. What does that mean? This story is not about you and me. This story is about God. The shepherd is suffering because the sheep is lost. The woman is suffering because the coin is lost. And the father is suffering because the son is lost. The story is about God. When we label it the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, we unintentionally remove the focus from God and put it on the thing that was lost. And then all we associate with is that which was lost and why it was lost. But the fact is it's lost. But the bigger picture, the richness, the beauty of these stories is the father. The heart of the father who loves lost things. And when he says you're lost, he's not saying you don't have value and worth. He's not saying he's going he's gonna to leave you lost. He's saying you're lost, and yes, you're lost by your own decisions, pride, rebellion, whatever the case may be, but I've come to find you. As Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. Seek and save. Seek means to find, to look for. So many times we use language about how we made our way back to God, and I understand that language. And I understand in this story that the son had to make a decision to turn, to go towards home. But I believe that it is God who finds us and we must respond to his finding and his seeking and his searching and the extension that he gives of his grace and his love for us. If I could rename this story, I'd simply rename it the heart of the father. The heart of the father. I have a few just concluding questions for us this morning. As we, as we look at this story and we try to identify in some way, because every story that we encounter, we try to identify, maybe consciously or unconsciously, where are we, who are we, how is it impacting us? The first one would be, I, I labeled as which son are you? Or which audience member are you? Because all of humanity is kind of grouped in those two people who've never received God and are rejecting him and people who think they're close to God because of their performance and how well their life is going. Neither, neither one had fellowship with the Father. Which one are you? And you can be a Christ follower and still fall into one of those categories at different points and times in your life. But you have to recognize which, which side of the aisle you're on so that you can really receive from him. The second thing that I would ask this morning is, is maybe you're just living in a world of comparison. Are you living in a world of comparison? And if you are, stop. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to stop comparing your lives with the person on your left and on your right. Stop comparing yourself. In parents, I would just say this. When your kids are acting crazy, in that moment, they do something it doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It means that in that moment, your kid was just a bad kid. No, it just means that your child has free will and they can rebel and they can reject just like we do with our Heavenly Father and realize that's just part of it. Stop comparing. You're enough. 
You have value and you have worth and your journey and the track that God has you on is different than the person to your left and the right, but God does not withhold. He withholds no good thing. He may not give it to you when he gave it to someone else, but he's fundamentally preparing you to be able to live within the fullness of whatever blessing it is that you're asking for because he wants you to prosper. And then the third thing is this, is are you willing to be found? Are you willing to be found? Some of us just want to stay in our lostness because that's where we think that we belong. Some of us think that if we find ourselves with the first son and we just live in life and we're doing destructive things, we feel, we feel like that's, that's just what we, we deserve. That's what, that's what our life will always be. And that God, and i got to clean myself up before I can make my way back to God. But I would be here to say that however you find yourself today, start making your way, make the decision to get out of that pig pen. And the moment that you encounter God, he's going to give you new clothes. He's going to give you the family ring. He's going to put sandals on your feet. And that son had not done anything to benefit God except be his creation. If you find yourself on the, on the performance side of things, that's where I came from. That, that's me. I would just encourage you today to say, you know what, to be able to stand before the Father and say, you love me because you created me. And my performance does not make you love me anymore. You saved me not because I was good for you based on what I did. You saved me because you loved me. And everything I do for you, I'm not earning anything from you. I'm just doing it because of your love for me because my relationship with you is based on the finished work of Jesus, not the finished work of Josh. That's a powerful thing, to receive the undeserved, unmerited favor of God, his grace. I want to read to you lines of, a, of an old poem that became a hymn said, none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I want to just provide an opportunity. If you are here this morning and you'd say, you know what, I'm willing to take a shot to my pride and say that I, I identify as lost and I want to be found. I want the grace and the forgiveness of God in my life. I'm, I'm lost and I want to be found. If that's you this morning, I want you to just, would you raise your hand because I want to pray with you. I'm not going to make you come to the front. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Secondly, the second group I want to pray for, if you're just here this morning and you're so struggling with performance that God only likes you, if you do good, if you do good, you get good, if you do bad, you get bad, we would call that having maybe, maybe you grew up in a very legalistic environment and you just think that God is not for you, he's against you and you're in fear of him this morning in an unhealthy way, if that's you, would you raise your hand because I want to pray for you. That was me for so many years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. First group, I'm going to pray for you and after I pray for you, I just want you to know that out at the In the cafe, at the registration desk, we have a gift. It's called a What's Next box, a Bible, a book called A New Way of Living. I would love for you to get that gift, no questions asked. 
Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for the, that first group, everyone that raised their hand and said, I'm, I'm lost and I want to be found. God, I just I thank you for that admission in them that they need you. They've rejected their pride, rejected their, their rebellion. I need you. Your way is better. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, you begin to reveal the person of Jesus to them right in their heart. Begin to change their life, Father, from the inside out, that they would see that you are a good, good father, that you will be the Lord of their life. Yes, that means ruler, but you will, you will, you will rule their life in such a way where they can, they can have fellowship with you, that they can have freedom, that they can have the life they always wanted, but that life is a life submitted to you, and I thank you for them submitting their lives to you this morning. Save them, set them free, fundamentally transform them. Father, I pray for the second group that say, man, I'm just living in fear today. God, whether you, it's like the proverbial flower, you love me, you love me not. I just pray for freedom in that in the name of Jesus Christ. I thank you that Paul said, we have not received the spirit of bondage to fear again, but we've received the spirit of sonship, whereby we call you Abba, Father. Thus your spirit testifies according with our spirit that we are the children of God. I pray for every one of those individuals right now, they would experience an overwhelming sense of your grace, the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. They would know that, as Paul said in Colossians, that we are hidden in Christ. And Father, when you see us, you see Jesus. You see us through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, whereby we shall reign in life through Jesus. We're accepted and we are beloved And on the basis of that, Father, we have the opportunity to obey you because you're a good, good Father. We love you. I pray for every person in this room, blessings. Lord, I pray you provide and meet their needs this weekend. Keep them safe as they have fun tomorrow doing whatever it is that they do. Help us come back safe next week and bring a friend for surface tension. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. amen. God bless you. You have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week.